This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 28, 2019. Uh, this is episode 2461, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for a Listener Council Q&A show. This is where we have questions for our illustrious, infamous, and somewhat famous expert counsel. i got a good lineup for you today. Here's what we have. We have Learning to Sharpen with Cheap Knives from Patrick Rohrman. We have the ins and outs of the new electric trucks that are on the market from Derek Bonpietro. Uh, we have Dealing with Teachers when they're wrong about a fact, and a kid knows it. But you are in the Government Indoctrination Center. I mean, public school, oh, government school. You know, we don't use public school. And there are certain things that you have to accept when you're there. We have the tactful way to deal with this situation from Mike and Sue LaPrise. Getting more exercise into your life the simple way with Gary Collins. Mowing land that will eventually be pasture with full-time farmer Darby Simpson. A market update and some comments on the current volatility in the stock market from John Pugliano. And how do you get it started accepting cryptocurrency? It'll be with me, myself, and I, Jack. And specifically, this for a person who has an offline business, primarily anyway. People primarily do not pay on a website. They don't buy and you ship them something. They're not buying something online. You're going and doing a service and they're providing it to you. It's actually the easiest way. Uh, to accept cryptocurrency, but the person mentioned something in this that's not cryptocurrency. And we'll talk about that as well. And some of the new things coming that aren't cryptocurrency or even are cryptocurrency-like that aren't cryptocurrency. All of that and more, and it's time to just dive right on into it. So let's go ahead and take our first question today. This is for Patrick Worman of MT Knives on sharpening knives and learning to do so by practicing with cheap knives where you don't care if you screw something up. Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Matt. Matt asks, should I use cheap dull knives to learn how to sharpen knives? Details. We have a quite, we have quite a few cheap kitchen knives. We're talking sub $10 knives from Walmart that are so dull the meat gets ripped instead of cut. We also have a couple of nicer Wooshtoff knives that we have received as a Christmas present, $100 to $150 range. While my wife and I do enough cooking to appreciate the difference in the sharpness and quality, I admit we did not take care of them like we should. They started getting fairly, <clears throat> and they are starting to get fairly dull after a couple of years. <laughs> well, I'd say so. <clears throat> I want to wait to get any more higher quality knives until I learn how to take better care of them and most importantly learn how to sharpen and hone them. My initial thought was to learn on <clears throat> some cheap knives to avoid messing up the expensive ones. While doing research online I came across multiple posts that said cheap knives were not worth sharpening. And then he goes on to say <clears throat> some more stuff. So don't listen to what you read online. Um, there's a lot of opinions that uh, Anybody can just post online. I recommend that you do practice on cheap knives. In fact, um, I often recommend people go to 
a thrift store and pick up some knives for a quarter or a dollar and practice sharpening them. But I also recommend starting on a knife that hasn't been um, severely abused. And even your wolf stuffs, you know, not being sharpened for two years, they're going to be in pretty poor shape. Even if they don't appear to be, they're going to require a lot of work to get sharp. So I would recommend taking a knife that is cheap and practicing, learning the basics. And if if you're going to sharpen your woost off, I would suggest sending it off to be professionally sharpened and then practice the minute it loses its cutting edge. As far as supplies going, what to buy, I've done posts on my website, and I'll include a link of uh, their Amazon affiliate links for the sharpening stones that I recommend. Um, You don't need everything that I have on the site. You can start off with a good 1,000-grit stone. And uh, recently I've purchased some diamond diamond stones that I like as well, and I'll try to include a link for that as well. But anyways, I look forward to hearing how you do. uh, Shoot me an email. Let me know your experience, and if you have any problems, I'll do what I can to help. If you'd like more information, you can pick up my DVD, Beyond Razor Sharp, where I cover all this and more on how to get your knives sharp and keep them that way. Thank you very much. This has been Patrick Rohrman with mtknives.net. Have a great day. So a couple real quick additions there. Uh, Number one, defending the advice that I disagree with from the interwebs. Uh, where people say it's not worth it to to, to bother with sharpening uh, cheap knives. I understand the sentiment. What the person's saying is if you go out and buy, you know, one of the knives I recommend to have a bunch around because they're super cheap, and they're a decent knife for what they are, is called a Wahoo Killer. You can get them from Bud K. And I think they're about $2 a knife. And they come razor sharp, and they hold their edge for a little while, and then they're pretty dull. Uh, if you value your time... That, let's say even $20 an hour, and it takes you 15 minutes to sharpen that knife, uh, you know, you're working for, what, f- 50 cents an hour or something like that? Like, you could just buy another $2 knife. And I think that's one place that people with that advice are coming from. And the other place they're coming from is most really cheap knives are made with really cheap steel, and they don't hold an edge well, so you use them for what they're for. I personally feel if that's if that's the way you're viewing knives beyond... You know, I mentioned the Wahoo Killers because they're just cheap, they're sharp, you throw them in a drawer, you need one, there it is. They're kind of disposable. But if you're going to do it, like, if you're going to regularly rely on that, um, I, I really recommend that you look at something like the uh, the Outdoor Edge uh, RB20, which I've previously reviewed, uh, or its competitor, the Havilon Peranta. These are... Um, they're made like little folding knives, like a typical liner lock knife, and they have a frame, and a blade just slides in and slides out. And the blades are very scalpel-esque. They're very sharp like a scalpel. They're made with a cheap steel that's often used for scalpels. They don't hold an edge a long time, but they're really, really cheap. And, you know, you can have your little folder uh, and your little um, uh, belt pouch with you know, 20 blades in there. And when it gets dull, you just... It's like, it's like swapping out the razor blades in a razor knife, but it's far more practical because you have a sweeping blade for things like skinning and stuff like that. And that's the primary thing. I, I own an outdoor edge, and the primary reason I do is when I'm hunting, um, some of the t- places I go... 
Uh, I might shoot two deer, a pig, uh, in, in you know, in, in a day. And so I'm going to skin three animals, and yeah, I can have my nice knife and be sitting there with my sharpening steel in between. But honestly, in that mode, all I'm thinking is I'm dirty. I stink like the pig I just drug out of the woods. I just want to get this done, have a beer, take a shower, and eat dinner, right? So I, I like that knife for that purpose, but I can see people using it for other purposes. I have uh, been doing things like boning a chicken or something and, and just like, I have this knife stole. I don't feel like you can reach out and grab it. So I, I'd throw that in there if you're going to take that approach. Um, and then on Patrick's suggestion, that you not take a knife that you have totally beat to shit and use that to learn how to sharpen. I agree because instead of rehoning an edge, you end up having to create the entire edge. And it, it's not something you can't do. It's just something that I think if you're just learning to sharpen, it's easier to learn to restore an edge than to create an edge. Lastly, I really recommend you guys check out the WorkSharp uh, Knife Sharpener. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Uh, and I definitely recommend cheap knives to learn how to use that. And if you're using the WorkSharp, uh, you definitely can put an edge back on a lot quicker. It still takes time. It still takes skill. Uh, but specifically, the Ken Onion Edition is going to give you the exact angle that you're looking for. It is a little... you got, you got to really know what you're doing to get the full sharpen back on the heel of the knife. That's the most difficult part to sharpen anyway, which, of course, is the back end of the knife. But um, you will... I think most people will be better served with a work sharp than with a stone. I really do. That's my personal opinion. So I thought I'd add those. Again, I'll have links to both of them in the show notes. Next up, we have a question uh, for Derek Bonpietro on uh, electric trucks. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from Affordable DC Generators. I've got an interesting one about electric trucks. Let's dig into it. What do you think of electric trucks? Background, I have a 2005 Toyota Tundra double cab with an off-road and towing package. Side note, that's an awesome truck that I have just about worn out. Looking at a new truck of the same configuration and is about $50,000. Wow. Yep, I feel your pain. I paid $18,000. Used ones seem overpriced too. Looks like the Ford and Tesla electric trucks are surprisingly about the same price as a new Tundra. Most days I drive 10 miles to the train station. Once or twice a month I have to drive, which is 90 minutes or more, for 30 miles. Sometimes I go to scout meetings after work, which is another 15 miles from the train station. No charging available at the train station or work. Electricity is home is $0.10 cents a kilowatt. On the weekends I go to the Home Depot and camping, usually less than 90 miles away, but sometimes 150 miles. I don't own a working trailer right now, but may get another one. They claim about 350-mile range, but will I be stuck? Can I recharge with a generator? After a storm one weekend, we had to take the long way home due to downed trees. I worry about doing that in an electric vehicle. I'm still hoping to get another year or two out of my truck, but I'm starting to price replacements in case it breaks down. Well, John, that's a pretty, pretty advanced question, so let's get into this. Uh, I'm going to go with a Jack Spearco response on this. When you ask, what do I think about an electric truck? No, no, no. Now, I've seen some of the articles on the electric truck, and honestly, we know that EV vehicles is where the industry is going to. Trucks are going to follow suit, not only tractor trailers, but then also smaller class vehicles like pickup trucks. But so many unanswered questions. You know, electric vehicles like the Teslas have only been around for a few years, and even though they seem like a pretty good contender, you know, they still have their problems. 
and the trucks, you're, you're an early adopter. So this is going to be a toy or you're looking to make a statement by driving one of these. And I get it. I'm a car guy. So going out there and getting a certain type of vehicle, you know, when you fall in love with it, sometimes you just got to have it, but you're an early adopter. This is going to be a first generation and yeah, they've had EV trucks in the past, but there's such limited production numbers. So when you're talking about making something like this, uh, you know, you, you're, you're at the, the leading edge of the spear, so to speak. And you really just don't know what the problems are going to be or the longevity. And do you want to be the guy that's having to rely on a warranty because you don't know if this thing is going to make it outside of the warranty date? So I don't know. It's one of those things where we just don't know till we know. And honestly, if I'm buying it, I wouldn't want to be asking that question. Now, I mean, if we look back, I was a Toyota tech when the Prius came out. And I tell you, the first generation Prius was... Uh, pretty complex and very, very advanced in technology, and it did work, and it worked great, but when you compare it to the second generation and later models, they're night and day difference as far as uh, the refinement of the technology and the driving experience and Priusic driving experience, but like when you're getting on and off the throttle and brake, the first ones are very, very clunky compared to the later ones, so you know there's going to be refinement down the road. Again, personally, I would wait till these things have been out for at least five to ten years, second or third generations before investing money in it. A couple of other follow-ups. So can you charge a Tesla off of a generator? It seems like, depending on the generator, uh, the inverter generators have a great signal, and some of the more expensive ones they tend to respond to very well. If you have a cheaper generator that has lots of harmonic noise or doesn't respond well when, when charging the unit, sometimes the Tesla gets a little funky and doesn't charge off of it. So... Again, you might not know until you buy a generator. Uh, some of the home standby generators also don't have a bonded neutral to ground on the generator, so that also will make the Tesla unhappy, where if you get like a remote job site generator, those are bonded, and I guess they don't have a problem. So, again, you got, you got a lot of variables there because they're really not made to be charged off a generator. They're made to be charged off grid power, so you just don't know till you know. So you buy one, hook it up, see what it does. And again, you got a very expensive truck, and then you got to go out and buy a generator and see if it works. And these are a lot of contingencies where maybe you just don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. It sounds like you're looking to take advantage of some of the new technologies that get uh, better fuel economy or maybe just run off of electricity for the obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of great plug-in hybrids, or I think some of the you know Teslas that have already been out for a while might be a good uh, solution to the problem. And Getting a cheaper, older replacement truck that has far less mileage on it, and so having both of them, that way you get your daily driver, you get all the efficiencies of the green technology, but then when you got to get the truck and actually put it to work, you're not doing a ton of mileage, but you don't have to rely on something that's uh, a little finicky in certain situations like going really long distances or perhaps maybe in a situation where there's weather or you got to take the, the long way around and you got to worry about these things where you can just use you know, the quote-unquote conventional technologies and not have to deal with that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for a truck that is electric and going to get all kinds of fuel economy, uh, it just really doesn't exist. And I don't think a diesel alternative is better either because those have all kinds of issues with the emissions and things like that. So I'd stay out of that arena. Uh, I would just stick with a conventional truck and probably get one that's a little more economical in the price department than something newer in the $50,000 range, which makes no sense, and maybe spend some of that budget on a car that can fulfill those fuel economy needs rather than making a truck try to do it, which realistically really can at this point and probably won't for at least a couple of years. So I'm sorry that I really don't have a direct answer for this. I mean, maybe sit tight with what you've got for a while, 
wait till that Tesla truck comes out, wait till it's proven itself, and then maybe jump into it. I mean, this is a large purchase, so uh, there's nothing you want to necessarily be the first person in line trying to pick it up because you just you just don't know what you're going to get. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. Always pushing new stuff out every couple of weeks. Got some videos on the new YouTube channel. Summertime is here, so if you got a boat or RV and you're tired of running the propulsion engine or the main engine or bigger gensets to recharge batteries or maybe you get that cloudy day in there where solar's not quite kicking it, an affordable DC generator out there to top your batteries off and keep everything happy. Take care, guys. Have a good one. So just a couple additions. One, you know, you hear this truck's $50,000. You're like, ouch. Um, I just happened to hear this yesterday, and I, I linked to a small article about it for you to drive home the rest of what I'm going to talk about in my follow-up here. Uh, Chevy is releasing a pickup truck that is over $100,000. $100,000 for an effing pickup truck. Y you can buy a supercar for less than $100,000. A pickup truck for $100,000. And people seem to want it. Like, like People have been clamoring for this level of a, of a pickup truck. And let, let's, let's be honest about what's going on here. By having a $100,000 pickup truck, they're highlighting how awesome they are. Ford has one that I think is going to come in at like $94,000, uh, Super Duty. Um, I love my Super Duty, but it ain't worth no $90,000, and it never was, and it never will be in my opinion. But here's where I'm going with this. I think that even though these are kind of the extreme examples, and you can still you know, get into a pickup truck for under thirty grand, um, the cost of vehicles is getting ridiculous. You can still, you know, not everywhere. I mean, there's places you can. There's still a lot of places though. For around a hundred thousand dollars, you can buy a pretty decent house. I mean, seriously, um, people are financing a truck for five six years. Uh, that costs as much as, as at least half of a house. I mean, if you can't find a house for $200,000, you need to move. Uh, I understand you might want one that's worth more, but if you can't find a decent home for around $200,000, you live in the wrong place. Um, so a $100,000 truck, we're now going to take what well, we pay 30 years on to buy a house and, and try to pay it off in five to six years to buy a damn truck. This is why transportation of a service has got to come. As they continue to do what they're doing in the world of vehicles and they get more and more expensive and inflation does what inflation does, we're going to reach a tipping point where it just doesn't make sense for the average person to own uh, a vehicle. And it certainly will not make sense for the average family to own two vehicles. And as kids start getting mobile, you know, two vehicles plus one was handed down and now we buy a new one. A family really has three vehicles. In the yard. It's not going to be a thing. It is going to change. On the early adoption... This makes me think of when I first moved to this property and realized I needed a lawn tractor. I went down to Lowe's, and I already had in my head I was going to pay cash and buy this tractor from Husqvarna. It's a good little tractor. It's the one that uh, race car driver Jeff Gordon was advertising at the time. I walk in, and there's this red and gray machine that fascinated me. I was blown away. It looked like a four-wheeler and a tractor had a baby, and then ha they had Stephen Harris come take that baby and install a generator in it. It looked fantastic. It was a hybrid tractor that could run on gas or electric, and when it ran on gas, it charged up the battery bank, and it could run for something like an hour um, of drive time and about 30 minutes of mowing time completely on electric and be completely quiet. On top of this... 
it had a 5,500-watt generator built into it. So you could literally like drive out to the edge of your property, fire up the generator, and have electricity anywhere on the property. And I already had two generators. This would be my third generator, and it was mobile, and I could put it in the back of a pickup truck. And do you know who makes that? I don't remember because I returned it. Uh, first, I had it fixed twice by service. Then I returned it for a new one. Then I returned that one and got $1,000 back plus the Husqvarna I was originally going to buy because it didn't work. And as far as I know, it went away and never came back. I don't ever want to be the first person using a specific expensive new technology. I might be one of the first people adopting a social media platform. That's pretty low risk. But when you're asking me to put in thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and be the guinea pig that drives the first-generation vehicle, especially in a, in a world where I think we are going to move toward transportation as a service, I'm not doing it. I learned my lesson. I suggest you take Derek's advice. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on teachers when teachers are wrong. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, hey, Jack, hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Dave C. in Washington. Is there a tactful, appropriate way for a teenage child to challenge or refute what they're being taught in a classroom, or is it a case-by-case -case basis? How should a teen student respectfully disagree with a curriculum in school? Would you have to get to know the teachers and see if they're open-minded versus my way or the principal's office? Thanks. Well, the primary thing to remember here is you chose this education for your child. They didn't choose it themselves. So I mean, I'm glad you're asking the question because it shows you feel responsible for helping them solve the problem that you put them in. So remember, the government school is not there for freedom of thought and expression. It is an indoctrination center. They have a very strong purpose. So let me tell you a story. So there was a uh, college with a philosophy professor who was doing a class with a debate on the, the abortion issue, pro-abortion versus anti-abortion. Um, there were 27 students in the class, and the professor decided that they were going to do a debate. And so the day came for the debate, and they split the class uh, in sides. And there were 25 students on one side who were pro-abortion, two students on the other side who were pro-life. And you would think that the professor would be the arbiter of the debate. Standing in, in, in the, the middle, middle of the room. <clears throat> Instead, he went to the side with the 25 kids. And as the debate began, he would add questions or he would add points to the debate on the pro-abortion side. And uh, it went back and forth for a while. And then the professor at the end to the two students who were pro-life said, is that all you've got? And he announced that the 25 students and himself were the winners of the debate, and those other people were very excited, and they applauded. And um, I tell you that story because it's a true story that happened back with, with me in 1977. So understand, this is not new. The institution's goals are indoctrination, not necessarily education. So in arguing with an adult, you've taught your kid all these years it's bad, it's insubordinate to argue with an adult. So how do you flip that switch as they go into high school? Um, so ask yourself, what would you do as an adult in that situation with friends or at work? Because those are two different things. And that's what you have to teach your kid, how to differentiate between those two things. 
And then the next question I would ask is, to what purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? And I, again, for Dave, what are you trying to accomplish with your child in doing this? Or what is your child trying to accomplish? Is it a matter of him expressing what he, he or she thinks? Or is it trying to show the other students that the teacher is wrong? Um, either situation, it, it could get pretty sticky. Okay, so because if you stand up for yourself, there is all kinds of torment from the teacher that can come down on your kid. The grade, exclusion from things. If the teacher decides to punish the whole class, then everybody's mad at your kid. And um, until I was 11, includes two years of third grade, I would argue and I would not, I would say, why, why, why? And then I realized the teacher's pet is doing much better than I am in this situation. So I'll do that. And that lasted for a couple of years until it got really frustrating. And I dropped out of high school a couple of times until there was a self-paced, no opinion option to graduate my last two years of high school in a couple months. So for me, when I'm leading a homeschool high school discussion or even a junior high discussion, which is a little bit more complicated, um, I like to allow the students to debate with each other. Well, I keep track of the facts, and, and then I get to ask more meaningful questions, and I draw them out because there's always a kid, even if I've really studied up on a subject, that figured out things I didn't know or they're just smarter than I am. And I'm very well aware that there are many 18-year-olds that are smarter than I am in certain areas. So there are variables, right? So the, the answer could be it depends, as Jack would say. So how smart is your kid? Is your kid... Ben Shapiro or Jack Spirko. How resilient are they? And how obnoxious are they? If your child is already an obnoxious person at school that the teachers don't like, I would definitely say, let this go and let him graduate. Yeah, and another question would be, who, as you pointed out, who's the teacher? Yeah, I think in all my years of school, kindergarten, two years of third grade, through college, two teachers that I knew enjoyed and encouraged open debate and discussion with their students. And also you're opening your, your child up to persuasion. So perhaps that teacher who may be 40 years old and has been teaching this for 20 years will persuade your child that they're wrong or persuade your child that you're wrong. Yeah, we don't even teach our kids that there's a Santa Claus because early on in my home education, I, when I was reading, they would talk about how the Parents are lying to you, and Santa was one of those lies that your parents told you. And I thought, I want to be as open and honest with my kids as possible so that when somebody tries to persuade them that I'm wrong, they can come to me and talk to me, and we can talk about that. Because I am wrong, quite frankly. We're all wrong. So uh, one of the weird things that happened recently, I was listening to the psychologist who I normally like, and um, she's doing a teacher's conference, and she says how glad she was to be talking to the teachers rather than the parents because the teachers have more persuasion in kids' lives. And I just thought, oh, my God, if parents knew that teachers thought that, wouldn't they be more careful? Yeah, that's kind of a terrifying statement. Isn't it, it is. It? Yes. So to maximize your child's freedom of expression and thought, we've designed our life around family and home education. Back to you, Jack. So I'm often amazed by the coincidences that occur with questions, answers, expert counsel shows, emails that come in, 
sometimes back-to-back emails that you know one asks me a question, the other one actually helps me answer it. That thing, that sort of thing, just seems to happen around here. Well, I've been working um, this week really hard uh, on continuing the book that I started quite a while ago called Thirty Laws of Life, and the exact title may change, but Thirty Laws of Life will be in it. And I was working on uh, the twelfth chapter today. And that chapter uh, is based on the law of life that there's a reason you cannot walk through walls in your dreams. They're your walls. You put them there. And that may not sound related to teaching, but as I wrote this article with no actual intent to bring up teaching in it, and I started talking about walls in our lives and how we uh, can overcome them. And I don't want to say too much on that because it's for the book, Uh, but... I started explaining some of the ways that personally I removed walls in my life. And one was that I always wanted to be a teacher. A lot of you probably don't know this about me for how hard I am on the education system, but I actually love teachers. It's from a standpoint of teachers that actually do a good job teaching. I had some good teachers in school. I had some shitty ones. But I had some really good ones that, that still to this day, there are things in my life that are better because that teacher was part of my life and a mentor to me in some way. And I thought about being a teacher. The problem was, one, I had to go to college, and I didn't want to. Number two was the structure and all these different things. So I talked about all these things that make teaching something I really didn't want to do when we think of it as being a high school teacher or a college teacher or something like that. But then when I went into podcasting, it was really so I could teach. And that's enough for framing a few paragraphs from the book that I, I just wrote this. I mean, finished writing this and then started working on the show. So here we go. The other way I know I'm teaching is my students are teaching me back, teaching each other and finding new students of their own. We have social media groups that number in the thousands on platforms like MeWe and Facebook, groups on homesteading, making me, gardening, basic preparedness. Many of them are groups I founded or co-founded and I'm directly involved with. That is great, but what's even better are the dozens more communities that listeners have built and now run on their own. Uh, We were nothing but the inspiration. They did all the work. They now have massive social capital to build something on their own with. See, what I wanted to do, be a teacher, was only possible in the way I wanted to do it via a method of realizing there is no wall. The walls that existed, like degree requirements, structured curriculum, and rigid schedules, were fake walls. I really didn't want to be a high school teacher or a college professor. I just wanted to teach. I considered these other options my only path as a young man because I thought the walls were real, because I didn't know what teaching really was yet. So how do I define teaching now? The conveyance of knowledge in such a way that the student doesn't just know and understand it, but rather can both act upon it, teach it to others, and improve upon it, to the point where they also create students who themselves become teachers. My opinion is until this process is self-replicating, it isn't teaching. Your students should not just be able to teach. They should feel compelled to do so to the point where they start doing it and don't even realize that is what they are doing. Until this happens, you are simply giving people the ability to say pass a test. You're not truly teaching them. I will add this. If your students are not teaching you back, you are a shitty teacher. If your students are not challenging you, You are a shitty teacher. Lastly, if you are upset or offended when you are challenged by your students, you are too arrogant to be a good teacher. 
I find it incredibly uh, synchronous that I wrote those words uh, without having reviewed this call at all and having no idea I was going to play it today. Now, tempering that, first of all, most teachers in public schools are formulaic because they have been trained to be. Secondly, there is a difference between a student coming to a teacher after class and saying, Mr. Smith, you said this today. I don't think you're right about that. Here's why, and here's my source of information on that, and I wanted to know what you thought about that. Then sticking your hand up in class in front of 25 other students and saying, you're wrong. That will almost never go well in a school environment of almost any kind. Try that with your karate, your sensei, your karate teacher, right, or your jiu-jitsu teacher. You're going to end up with your ass on the ground probably, even if you're right. So there's a way to handle things in that structured environment. Because very few teachers care enough about their students to have gone inside deep enough to have lost the arrogance sufficiently to be challenged directly and to embrace that challenge and actually feel they've accomplished something when the student's right and they're wrong. You heard Sue say she's very aware that some of the people she teaches are smarter than her. That, that is a gifted teacher that is an incredibly gifted teacher and she she also added to it in some areas when you're teaching it's necessary that you know more about something or how to do it than other people do it doesn't mean you know more about everything somebody recently uh, i posted a picture of one of the sharks i caught while i was in sanibel and the guy said jack that's not a lemon shark that's probably a spinner shark And maybe it is. So I looked it up, and I'm like, I think maybe you're right. You know, I guessed that lemon. He said, I don't mean to be a know-it-all or anything. She's not like, I don't, I know a lot of shit, but I don't know everything about everything. So you know, I welcome someone telling me you got this wrong, as long as they do it with some level of respect. I try to be respectful of other people as well. So if you're going to teach your child to challenge what they're being taught in school, there's a couple things. Number one the right way to go about it. Two, be open to the fact that they may think they're right and actually be wrong. And number three, it doesn't really matter if the teacher changes their mind. If your student, if your kid is really right, that's enough. That's enough. And if it comes down to it, and they need to put the wrong answer on a test to get an A, put the wrong answer on the test. Let's take another one. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, living off the grid, RV living, decluttering your life, financial freedom, health, wellness, paleo diet, you name it, anything to make your life better. And also make sure to check out my new book, the third book in the Simple Life series called The Simple Life Guide to Decluttering Your Life. It's not about just getting rid of those ugly Christmas sweaters. It's about decluttering your life. A lot more in there. But Len has a question. Him and his wife uh, live remotely, and they have a pretty good piece of land that they upkeep. And all of us who live this lifestyle know that just maintaining our property is a lot of physical labor. When I'm at my off-the-grid house uh, about seven months a year, I definitely burn a lot more calories than the other five months when I'm not here. Um, so I have to balance that. 
But to do things in addition, I do. I still work out, even though I get plenty of exercise otherwise on the property and, you know, walking the dog and going for bike rides, all that good stuff. What I have, as some of you who follow me have seen some of the pictures, I believe I've posted them. I have a very basic uh, weight and uh, pull-up bar slash just a basic small gym that consists of a weight bench, workout bench, bench press bench, basically a set of Bowflex dial weights. They're expensive. I will not lie, but they go up to 55 pounds. I think they dial down to five. They're awesome. I mean, well worth the money. They work really, really well. I don't make any money off these things. Trust me, but they're perfect. Uh, you don't have to buy a whole set of free weights. It's just one set, two dumbbells. That's it. Then I have a dip pull-up bar with a, uh, ab crunch, uh, little pad on it. Perfect. All that stuff cost me less than 500 bucks total. And people go, Oh my God, 500 bucks as they're watching their 50 inch TV, which cost $500. Um, (laughs) have to say that, but, uh, it, it is a little bit of an investment, but for a home gym, it's very cheap. And here's the kicker. That stuff lasts forever. You never have to replace it, or at least you shouldn't. So look at it that way as it's an investment for a lifetime of getting some exercise and working out. So I use that for resistance training for stretching. I would recommend just getting a simple yoga mat and doing some yoga. You can learn all the exercises through. I would recommend going to a a class, a yoga studio and learning from a professional as opposed to going online and all that good stuff. But that's just me. I'm more of an in-person person. I hope that helps uh, for the supplementation of wanting to do more working out when you live remotely is you basically got to set up your own little, little gym if you want to. And you heck, you can even do it outside. I was, I'm going to be putting some stuff up outside that I'm going to make down the road. So hope that helps again, guys go to the simple life now.com and to stay in touch with me, sign up for my newsletter. Thanks again. All right. Next up, we have a question about mowing uh, land that eventually will be pasture, but it's not pasture yet. And we don't want to mess anything up. We also can't just not mow because the next thing you know, pasture and fields that are unmowed or ungrazed, well, nature takes its course and they turn into forests. So, Darby, what should we do here? Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life calling in for the TSP Expert Council to answer another question this week. And uh, this week I got one from my home state of Indiana, from Chris up in northern Indiana, and Chris has got a question about how often should he mow a future pasture. And I know we, we're talking about pastures, it's, it's kind of heresy to throw the, the mowing word out there. But there is a time and a place for mowing, and this is definitely one of those times. Um, so here are the details on Chris's question. He's got about uh, five acres of pasture that he is converting into a savanna. He's planted over 300 trees and shrubs from whips at a density of about double what he wants in a, uh, a future state to account for loss. little side note, congratulations on planting that many trees and shrubs, Chris. Nice job. Uh, so these trees were planted early last spring, referring to 2018. And he hopes to start rotationally grazing cattle in the spring of 2021. So we're still about two years out. In the meantime, how often should I mow this area? 
Ideally, I'd like to mow annually so long as the trees have enough sunlight. In fact, the taller grass may help the trees grow taller and faster as they compete for sunlight. Is there a risk to the sward itself by mowing less frequently annually in the fall? Um, he mows with a flail mower that shreds the clippings into mulch. So, Chris, I don't think it's a bad idea to go into this thinking I'm going to mow it once a year. Um, personally, my first thought was I'm a little concerned about your trees and shrubs competing um, with the grass. If the grass gets too tall, actually, is it going to shade them out? Yeah, they're wanting sunlight, so they're going to grow taller, but that can also make them spindly. Um, the other thing is you're going to be uh, competing for nutrients a little bit. And by mowing a little bit more frequently, you're going to add more mulch to the ground. It's going to give it more time to break down. So there are some benefits there. I don't think it's terrible to mow once a year. Um, the benefit to mowing more frequently, believe it or not, is once you see those grasses and clovers coming up and they get a dried seed head on them, and you go in and, and, and mow and cut that, you're just you're, you're generating more seed. That's getting flung all over that ground, uh, hopefully with stuff that you want to see. Now, you don't have to go that route in order to, uh, you know, help it establish grasses uh, or legumes or things of that nature. But that's just a thought. Um, you know, the more often you can get those seed heads to come up, the better off you are. You're putting the, the seed right there on the surface of the ground. It's free. Uh, other than the cost of your time. Now, your time and and fuel, uh, energy, all these things, you know that's that's not free, and that's that's something you got to take into consideration. So, I don't know. Maybe this year I'd be I'd be more inclined to mow it more than once. Um, next year, if your trees and shrubs are taller, I, I definitely think you could potentially go into it thinking, hey, I'm just going to mow it one time and see how it goes. I mean, the great thing is you can always break out your flail mower and go out there and do it if you feel like it needs done. Um, or you could just break out the flail mower and, and mow close to the trees and shrubs uh, to give them a little bit of breathing room and leave everything else. So, I don't know. I think really at the end of the day you're kind of splitting hairs. Is it going to hurt the sword? No. it's. I don't think it's going to hurt the sword. So long as you're not mowing it real frequently... Um, and doing root damage, then that's okay. Now, one thing I will tell you is you can't mimic a cow with a flail mower, but you don't want to mow it too close to the ground. So if you could leave it a minimum of four or five inches tall, up to six, seven, eight inches tall, that would be ideal. Uh, where you could do damage is mowing it too short. Um, not that you're going to be doing it all the time, but you take off those leaves, it'll it'll actually do root damage. And uh, studies are fascinating uh, with plants. Like, it's a very fine line between grazing just the right amount and overgrazing. And it has exponential uh, negative effects to a plant if you overgraze it, even by like an inch, and you just take off a couple more leaves... It really does a lot of root damage, and it just takes that plant a whole lot longer to bounce back. So something to keep in mind. I don't think with your mower, if you, even if you went out there and mowed it three or four times a year, that you're going to do damage to the sword unless you're mowing it super short. So 
those are my thoughts, really. Um, you know, I would uh, I would encourage you to start thinking about your fencing sooner than later for your cows. Uh, I've answered a lot of questions on fencing on this podcast, so feel free to go back and look at uh, listen to those. Um, I tell you what, fencing takes a whole lot more time and energy than you can imagine when you build it for the first time. So I would tell you to start kind of getting a plan together, at least on paper. Maybe start getting some quotes together and start thinking about that. If you want to graze this in 2021, I would tell you to get your fence in um, maybe even by this time next year while the ground is still wet and soft and you're not uh, not trying to do it in the spring. As you know, here in central Indiana, Chris, we've been having super wet springs, and it's been it's been too wet to get out and do anything. So if you got some soft ground this time next year, if you see an opportunity – Maybe in the fall, the ground's usually a little bit drier then, but if it's wet, I go ahead and get that fence in. Get yourself all set up for your uh, rotational grazing. Happy to have you aboard uh, the ranks of grazing cattle in Indiana. So, hey, everyone, thanks for uh, sending me questions in. Um, As always, keep them coming. I'm happy to come on here and answer them for you. If you want to learn more about me and what I do in our farm here in central Indiana, uh, you can check me out at grassfedlife.co. Again, that's grassfedlife.co. And interestingly, I'll have an article, my first article, coming out in the Acres U.S. USA Magazine in August. So for those of you who subscribe to Acres, keep an eye out for that. Let me know what you think, and I will hope to get more questions from you guys. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend, and take care. Next up, we have an update from our guru of economics and finance and stocks and investing, John Pugliano, on the current state of the stock market. And the volatility that we've been seeing and what the future may hold. John, take it away, brother. Hey, TSP listeners. I'm recording this at the end of June, and I thought this was a good opportunity to review with you what's taken place over the last 30 days or so. And then also to give you some guidance as to what you want to watch for as we move into this summer, because I think just as the last 30 days has been very volatile... Those same large movements on the upside and downside, I think, are likely to continue and most likely last until we get into the fall. Now, to get a good perspective of what's taken place over this past month, remember back in early May, we had had the Chinese reneging and walking back some of the pre-negotiated deals that they had promised on the trade negotiations. And then right at the end of May, President Trump had talked about putting new sanctions on Mexico if they didn't help tighten up border security. All this had led to worries about a global slowdown. The yield curve was inverted. And to top it all off, we have Iran causing trouble in the Persian Gulf. That's how we start out the first week in June. And what happens? Well, the stock market basically turns around. And over the preceding weeks, moves up to where on June 20th, you had the S&P up over 8%, putting in a new record high that day. Now, as I record this, we're down a little bit from that record high, maybe off about 1.5%. But no matter how you look at it, since we ended 2018, over these past six months, the market has made an amazing recovery. And it's not just the stock market. If you even look at uncorrelated asset classes like Bitcoin, and its performance has been nothing short of amazing. Now, hey, I'm no fanboy for cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. I've never owned any. But I think Bitcoin's performance over the last six months is a great example of why whenever you hear negativity, 
and you see asset classes declining in price, that's the time to buy, not the time to panic. You go back about six months ago, all that you heard was that cryptocurrency was dead, and now here we are six months later, and just earlier this week, Bitcoin hit nearly $14,000, up 40% in one week, and then fluctuating two or $3,000 a day. Now, the S&P 500's performance was nowhere near that stellar, but since the lows of December, it is up about 20%. And all this movement in the stock market, both up and down, for the most part, has occurred without any material change in anything. And like I said, this volatility is likely to continue throughout the summer and probably well into September and October. And so as we get into these summer months, what you want to do is you want to keep your eye on three key things. Number one, you want to watch corporate earnings. Now, the media is going to try and play up the drama and the fact that the growth of corporate profits is slowing down. Now, we know that's going to take place because the overall effects of the tax cut are diminishing. That's okay. We're just looking for overall positive growth in corporate profits. doesn't matter that they're not growing as much. They just need to be growing and staying in positive territory. The second thing that you want to watch out for is the Federal Reserve and what they do with interest rates. There's a lot of debate right now as to when or if the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates, but I think the critical factor here is not so much about whether rates get cut or not. It's just the fact that the Federal Reserve is now in a cycle where they're not raising rates because a lower cost of money is always stimulative to the economy. And then finally, the last thing you want to keep your eye on is the price of oil. I think as long as oil prices can stay below $60 a barrel, that provides both the consumer and corporations with a low cost of energy. And just like low interest rates, that too will fuel and support corporate profit growth, which is in the end exactly what is going to drive the stock market higher. Despite all the negativity and gloom and doom that you hear, I don't see a recession anywhere near on the horizon. And so as long as we have low and stable interest rates and energy costs, I think that these pullbacks and these drawdowns in the stock market are an excellent opportunity to buy the dip because I think it's likely that we're still headed for new market highs as we get into the presidential election cycle of 2020. Well, that's where I think the general economy is headed. And so while overall I expect to see a lot of volatility in the coming months, I look at that as an opportunity, not a problem. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff from John, and I, I love John's advice on investing in the major markets. But let me tell you my belief about cryptocurrency and John Pagliano. The only reason that John Pagliano has a negative view of cryptocurrency is about four years ago at one of my workshops, right in my backyard at the Barter Blanket Fire, and I can see the ring from my window. I'm looking at it right now. He stood right in that spot, and he told everybody who was there, if you have a few thousand to ten thousand dollars sitting around, that it wouldn't hurt your feelings too bad if you lost it. What you should do right now is put it 100% in Bitcoin. Now, John is a successful man, and he could scrape up a few to $10,000 if he wanted to pretty easy. He promptly went home and ignored his own advice. And that's why he has a bug in his butt about cryptocurrency. Sorry, John, but it is true. Um, if you want my opinion on Bitcoin, there's going to be a lot of volatility, just like John said. 
and you could have major retractions between then and now, um, you may not. It, it all depends how fast it's going to happen. But I don't foresee that over the next year, Bitcoin fails to top $20,000. Um, I, I absolutely believe that. I am not buying a bunch of it because I have quite a bit. If I didn't have any, I would, I would right now actually be kind of looking in that like right around ten thousand, somewhere in the ten thousands, uh, is is not your guaranteed bottom, but your likely bottom. When you have these little jumps up like thirteen, fourteen, I wouldn't buy there. We're a long way off from the FOMO money coming in, the fear of missing out money coming in. But I will tell you this: this is how I usually know when when shit's about to break loose with with Bitcoin. I like five people in the past two weeks that are like not really show listeners. They're just friends, uh, kind of long you know long term relationships. People that I, I some of them have a lot of money, and I practically beg them to basically take John Pugliano's advice four or five years ago. Text me and go, should I buy Bitcoin now? When those people start rumbling about it, you know that we're getting to where the consumer level uh, people are going to come chase. But I think that we're far enough away from the great halving, which is about 330-odd days away, that we'll probably have a big spike and a drop, and then we'll have another big buildup. That's not a guarantee. It's just how I see things. Next up, I want to talk about cryptocurrency because I had a question on accepting cryptocurrency. Before I do, though, in the intro, I skipped our YouTube channel of the week. So I want to tell you about our YouTube channel of the week. So it's just a channel that I re- it's not something I'm directly associated with. Most of them come from you guys recommending it. If you put TSPC YouTube in the subject line, send me a link to a channel and a sentence or two on why you like it, I'll put it in my folder for consideration. Somebody just asked on Facebook while I was listening to John's answer and multitasking, what are the requirements to be a channel of the week? A couple 3,000 subscribers, good track record of consistent posting over at least the last six months. That's it. This channel has a million plus subscribers. They don't all have to be that big. But if you just set up your YouTube channel yesterday and you had like three videos on it of your cat, you're not ready yet. You have to have demonstrated that when I put this channel out, and people subscribe to it, they can have a reasonable expectation of ongoing content. That's that's the big thing. And I have to think it's interesting and probably the best of what I have to recommend based on what's in the, in the pool at the moment. This one's awesome. It's called How to Make Everything. And they're one of those channels that are smart. And they have kind of an intro video to their whole channel. So I'll just play that for you. And then I'll come back with my thoughts on how to accept cryptocurrency if you're just getting started doing that, specifically with offline business. Whether at work or on the go, every day we use hundreds of items without a second thought of their origin or creation. Yet everything we have today is forged from centuries of labor, innovation, and creativity in order to make these conveniences in the best way possible and at the cheapest price imaginable. However, without regard, we just buy, use, and throw these items away. What a shame. On this channel, I attempt to challenge this disconnection by removing the conveniences of international trade, mass production, and specialization. Instead, I attempt to recreate these everyday items with one simple rule. Do every step myself, personal. So join me as I attempt to learn how to make everything. So let me tell you something I love about this uh, this channel. Uh, there's a lot of shit this guy does I'm never going to do. He had one video I watched called How to Make a $600 Sandwich in Only Six Months. I was like, well, what the hell? Maybe there's some kind of really cool... 
um, meat or something. Somebody's going to do some curing of some meats and have some super high-end stuff. Um, it, no. It was like he made his salt from ocean water that he had to take an airplane ride to go get and then fly home, and the TSA almost arrested him for a bag of white powder from the uh, the salt that he made by boiling down the ocean water. Things like that. He grew his own wheat and then had to uh, to, to, to winnow it and then had to, to grind it into flour and make his own bread. So when he said make everything, he literally, if you're going to make a sandwich, you literally make, he planted a garden for the vegetables and all, make every piece of the sandwich yourself. Um, and, and a lot of his stuff is like that. He learned how to make a pair of glasses from scratch and things like that. I don't think most people that subscribe to this channel are going to actually emulate a lot of his projects. Though you may learn some things and say, like, this piece I would do or that piece I would do. I think more what he's trying to do and what he does is make you value what you have a lot more. So that at least maybe you think a little bit more about the quality of what you buy and the ability to maybe repair it uh, before you just get a new one, which is something we talk about all the time, fixing it versus calling a guy or replacing it. Because we are spoiled. We don't realize how much goes into making things. And when you actually see, like, if I had to make this thing that I can buy for $5 myself, how hard would it be? And the answer is a hell of a lot harder than you think. So it's not only valuing things more, it's also a gratitude thing. I think it's one of the things that we're lacking in our world today is we don't have enough gratitude. Uh, Louis C.K., despite his um, uh, his uh, discretions and his uh, thing he did that we'll just leave out, was a pretty funny comedian, right? And uh, he said he had one thing one time. He was on a talk show or something. He said uh, he was on an airplane, and he was listening to people on the airplane bitch about the world today. And he was like, I'm sitting on a chair in the sky. Everything is super, and yet everybody's bitching. I think that this channel helps you to see that just a little bit better. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take my question today about uh, accepting cryptocurrency. This one comes from Corey in Austin. And Corey says, how should someone go about getting set up to take crypto payments? I know a guy who loves, does landscaping. He prefers to take cash payments. More and more people are asking him if he'll take Venmo. He doesn't really like Venmo, mostly from tax fears, but also because he really likes the idea of decentralized currency competing against the debt-backed Federal Reserve notes. He would really like to get set up for crypto payments, but he doesn't know how to get started. Anything you can suggest will be appreciated. Corey and Austin. Well, here's the good news. When you're taking crypto payments, it doesn't matter what the other person is using in most instances, there are some platforms that are designed to use cryptocurrency as an option that it's really better if both people are using the same thing. But the way cryptocurrency works is if you have a wallet and that wallet has an address and that other person uses the cryptocurrency of your choice that that wallet is in and you give them the address, they can just send money to it. It doesn't matter if, let's say, you're using uh, a, a, a crypto exchange. Let's say you have an account with Bittrex. Because you're not very bright, you keep all your cryptocurrency on the exchange. I really don't recommend that. Uh, if I'm going to exchange some crypto, I move it to the exchange, do the exchange, and move it back to a wallet. But let's say you're doing that. Or, or you're using any other wallet. And let's say I'm using Jax. Right, You don't have to have a Jack's wallet to send me cryptocurrency. And so I would say that you know any of the multi-currency wallets that accept 
the most common cryptocurrencies is all that he needs. And he can set that up on his phone. And he really, 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 and I mean so much really in this, needs to make sure that he writes down his backup phrase and puts that somewhere secure so if something happens to the phone, he still has it. And to me, one of the best ways to do backups is install, you know, if you have a wall on your phone, install the desktop version on your computer. And if you have a, a laptop and a desktop, put it on all three. And then use that phrase to import that wallet. And that way they synchronize. And if somebody steals your phone, if you drop it in the lake, whatever, even though you still have the backup phrase and always could rebuild the wallet anytime you want to, it's just there somewhere else. Because in the end, even wallets are really only management tools. That's, it, it's a very difficult thing for people to understand. We are so used to centralization that we think of like my money is in Bank of America. And it's it's accounted for within their ledger. And it exists inside Bank of America. And it's there. So when I go to my bank account online and I log into Bank of America, if those people are still in business or whatever, uh, if they haven't merged with somebody else or something, uh, that, that that's where my money exists. And, and to a large extent, it's true. It's a journal entry in their system. Um, cryptocurrencies are far less that way. There's an address, and that address exists within a blockchain. And all a wallet really is. Now, there are some management tools. For instance, if you keep your cryptocurrency in Coinbase, really they control your private keys. They control your cryptocurrency. It's allocated to you, but it's not the same, right? That's why I don't... I, I, I like Coinbase for getting started. I think it's a great way to buy your first Bitcoin or buy your first Ether or whatever, but it's that's all I use it for. Again, my my exchange of choice is Bitrix, and my wallet of choice is Jax, but you can use anything you want. So that address, if you take and destroyed all your devices that had the Jax wallet on it, and you went and got a completely new device... And you install Jax, and then you used your backup phrase. You then would just automatically have access to it again. It's it's out there in the chain. That's how it works. So what that means for your friend is all he needs to do is pick a wallet and start taking cryptocurrency. And just say, I take cryptocurrency. Well, what kind? Well, what do you use? And they don't. There, there's no. I see. This is the beauty of this. He he likes to screw Uncle Sam. If he can take money from Joe, and Joe ain't going to tell no one, and he ain't going to tell no one, he ain't going to pay no taxes on it. And people say you can't do that with cryptocurrency. Bullshit. Like, so let's look at the Jack's wallet, for example, as to why it would be almost impossible for a guy running a landscaping business to get nailed by the IRS in a tax audit for taking 5% of his business in Bitcoin and not reporting it, just the same way he does with taxes, or with cash. So when I go into to, um, my Jack's wallet, and I say, I want to receive Bitcoin. It gives me a brand spanking new address. And I received to that address one time. And then, when I want to receive from the next customer, and I go into Jack, say, I want to receive. It gives me an address to transmit to. It's a brand new address. As far as I know, and you've got to check because I could be wrong. I don't use every cryptocurrency. It does that with every cryptocurrency for some reason except Ethereum. You only ever get one address from Ethereum. So, 
you know, maybe there's other ways to do that if you want to be a little bit more private about what you do. Of course, you can use privacy coins like Zcash, or you can use the privacy function of coins that can be both like Dash and, and be completely private. I, I don't like to use the word secret. I use the word private because even if you're private, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't disclose to the people that need to know. That, that, that's what I love about uh, privacy coins is they you let you control who knows what about what you're doing. So that's all I would suggest for your friend, and I think this is what most people should do, even people that do online sales, right? Even if you do online sales, you don't necessarily need to get a platform that integrates so that a person can pay with cryptocurrency the same way that a person would pay with a PayPal account. You can. There's good reason for it. The easier it is, the more likely a person is to buy from you. And if you would do a lot of volume in cryptocurrency, and what you're doing is what, like, Target will take cryptocurrency, but they immediately are converting it to cash, then that's kind of the way you want to do things. But if you just want to put a thing on your website, let's say you don't have a catalog of products. Let's say you sell a single service, like a membership. Or let's say, you know, you sell, like you're Nicole Sauce, and you sell coffee. I think Nicole has integrated cryptocurrency, but... You know, if she just put a thing that says, if you're interested in paying with cryptocurrency, please get in touch with us at this email address. Well, you can say, what do you want? Okay, send the money here since I have it. I'll send your coffee. And that keeps things person to person. We use the term peer to peer in computer language, but what we're really doing is person to person. And this is what's important about what cryptocurrency is supposed to be. Everybody uses the word decentralized, but do they really think about what that means? The purpose of cryptocurrency is not so we can send money electronically. That's not the purpose of cryptocurrency. It's a function of cryptocurrency, but it's not the purpose. We've been able to save money electronically really easy for a long time. PayPal lets us do that. Uh, this thing that he mentioned, I looked it up, it's called Venmo, lets us do that. But you're sending dollars. The new supposed cryptocurrency that Facebook is backing, that PayPal is backing, that big banks are back backing, called Libra, is nothing but a dollar-backed supposed cryptocurrency. The way they're doing it, yeah, it uses blockchain, but it's really just, it's just another form of banking because it involves the banks. It involves a central authority. It involves government. It's going to have government reporting. Nobody at Bitcoin, because there isn't a building with a big B on it that where Bitcoin is, reports to any government. The ledger's out there. You can go comb through it, but it is, if it was, it's not 100% private. And if you know what you're looking for, you can figure out that this address probably belongs to this person, especially depending on how they're using it. But if you could just determine who owned a Bitcoin address, the way you could determine who owns, let's say, a driver's license number, then when these hackers do these ransomware attacks and they have people sending money to a Bitcoin address, then authority would be able to do something with it. But what they do is they move it from one address to another address to another address to another address and then wash it back through, do a conversion to another different type of, uh, of cryptocurrency or what have you, and it, it becomes almost impossible to track. That's, that is the advantage of cryptocurrency. And then... You know, when it comes to taxes and the IRS, I don't trust those guys at all. You, you, I, you know, and but some random landscaper that happens to do ten jobs a, a year that he takes Bitcoin for, they don't have the time to go after him. If it falls in their lap, they'll fry his ass. 
And, and they see, they won't even audit a, a dude at that level. What they'll do is send him a letter that says, you screwed up, you didn't pay this much, here's the interest and penalties, give us a bunch of money or we'll ruin your life. That, that's what would happen if they caught him. They just don't have the time to go out and try to get everybody that's doing that. What they're doing is they're getting stupid people that did a couple hundred thousand dollars in profits on Coinbase because they got in early, they sold all their shit for cash and didn't report it, and then they seized by force information from Bitcoin on transactions over a certain size. That's the people that they went out and they fragged and really haven't heard much about it since. Um, I'm sure they'll make another run at this, especially as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other strong cryptocurrencies go on another bull run. Uh, but they like layups. The IRS likes layups. So that's what I would advise your buddy to do, and I would advise anybody that wants to start using cryptocurrency and buying stuff in currency and accepting currency and things like that to just get a wallet. Again, I recommend Jax because it's what I'm familiar with, but get the wallet of your choice. And just start talking to people and say, do you use cryptocurrency? And then sell something for cryptocurrency. Buy something with cryptocurrency. And again, I do think, you know, the way to get a couple hundred bucks worth, the easy way is PayPal. I'm not sorry, PayPal, get Coinbase. And if you'd like to do that, you can go to my website. There's a banner right there. If you do it, here's what happens. You click on the banner, and you go into your, your new Coinbase account that you set up. You'll have to enter information. Like You can't hide shit like this anymore when you're using dollars to buy cryptocurrency. You just really can't. It's okay. It's a couple hundred bucks. And when you, But if you do it through my banner, what will happen is you'll then have to like connect to your bank account or whatever, and you'll, you'll, you'll set up to buy your first hundred or two hundred bucks worth of, of Bitcoin. But if you buy a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, you'll get $10 in Bitcoin for free, and so will I. So if you're looking to get started, the reason I would suggest you use my banner is it benefits us both equally. We both get 10 extra dollars in Bitcoin. Uh, Coinbase has been doing that for a long time, and it's, it's, a, it's a good little program. It's a good way to get started. But once I got my money, I, the first thing I would teach myself is how do I move it? And I would go download Jax, and I would put my money in there, and I would start accepting cryptocurrency, and I would start paying for things in cryptocurrency. And if you want to do... You know, some more exchange level stuff, and you want to get into alternate coins and stuff like that, then I would look to Bittrex or Binance. Those are the two that I'm most comfortable recommending. I've used both of them. I've used some um, overseas exchanges um, because I wanted to do some things that were a little bit. Um, I wanted to buy in, in some instances some tokens that weren't available yet on Binance or Bittrex. Uh, and I'll just say that didn't work out well for me. <laughs> I make bad calls, too. Anyway, with that, we've gone ahead and we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you want to support us, remember, you can always become an MSB member. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. There's a form there you can fill out to pay with cryptocurrency if you want to. I do take cryptocurrency uh, for MSB. The other way that you can uh, help us out is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. I have uh, everything I've ever reviewed on Amazon there. They're broken down in categories. The categories are alphabetic. You can find everything I've reviewed. Uh, you can also just click on Deals of the Day and check out whatever the deals of the day are on Amazon. As long as you start there, no matter what you buy, you help support us in the work that we do. Um, and today's item of the day is a book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It's by a guy named Peter Hathaway Capstick. It's called Death in a Lonely Land, and it takes you across the world. From jaguar hunting in the dark in South America to hunting Cape Buffalo and leopards in Africa. It's an amazing book. 
I grew up reading Robert Rourke's books, like Use Enough Gun. Robert Rourke, his content made up for his writing style. He was actually, in my opinion, he was a terrible writer. And he was writing in like the 50s and um, some of the colloquialisms of the times and the way that he's referred to his wife and stuff just doesn't really work anymore. But the content made up for it. Capstick had the equal content, but he was also a really good writer. And I think you'll enjoy his books. As you look them up individually, you'll find a lot of them are out of print. Some of them have been reprinted multiple times. Some of them are in reprint. Some of them aren't. So you have to deal with what's available. Death in a Lonely Land, you usually can find some for a reasonable price. Uh, this is a book I have first edition of. I have some other first editions of Capstick's books. I have one that one of the members of this audience brought to me and gave me as a gift that I treasure, autographed first edition. Uh, this guy, I really love what he did, does, um, and I think you'll enjoy his book. By the way, if you like this show, and one of the things you've picked up over the years is how to make Biltong, and Biltong's now part of your life, You owe Mr. Capstick in this book for it. Uh, this book is broken into like a series of short stories. The last one is about Biltong and how to make it in your own home. Check it out, Death in a Lonely Land by Peter Hathaway Capstick. And remember, when you shop online, if you start on T-Spaz, you help us out no matter what you buy. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. The song of the day today as we finish up Freddie Mercury Week. It's called Made in Heaven. It's one of his singles from... Um, the Bad Guy uh, album. And uh, really, just a beautiful song. It really is. Anyway, that's that, that album, Mr. Bad Guy, has a number of songs that we've played this week on it. And when you know Freddie Mercury's history, and you know that eventually he became infected with the AIDS virus, uh, he went uh, quite a few years knowing that his condition would be fatal. Again, back in the late 80s and early 90s, we didn't have any real way to treat HIV yet. Today, people that have HIV uh, end up living long lives. Some have had such uh, successful therapy that even though they, they're HIV uh, positive in, in theory for the rest of their life, they, they, they can't even detect it in their body anymore. Right? So uh, it's not the death sentence it once was, but it was back then. And Freddie was a guy um, who had an incredible work ethic, and he worked right till the end, till he couldn't anymore. Um, he cut the last video that he ever did, I think something like a month before he passed away. Uh, and he was very uh, broken down and emaciated and stuff. And because of people, because people know this, and because of the nature of a lot of the music that he did on this album, like the song we listened to yesterday, Time, uh, the song uh, that we uh, are, are playing today, um, People tend to think, if they don't, like, especially younger people that weren't alive when this was going on, that, like, this music was kind of like Warren Zevon's last, Warren Zevon's last album, where it was, it was meant for a final goodbye. But what it ended up being was very prophetic, because this album was released in 1984, I believe, and Freddie Mercury didn't find out that he had HIV until 1987. So it was three years before he even found out he had the virus. But yet so much of it, has fit so perfectly that several of these songs were used in documentaries about Freddie's life that the rest of the band Queen partook in. Again, this song is called Made in Heaven, and it's different than a lot of songs that invoke the concept of a heavenly plane. Because it talks about all the great things that you have in your life having been made in heaven, but all the hard times, all the mistakes also having been made in heaven. 
The concept here is that all the things that we go through happen for a reason. It's up to us to figure out what that is and to do something with them while we're here. Because if you can't make the life you have living worth living here, whatever there is after it's over, it's not going to be very easy to do with that either. Whether you believe it's nothing or whether you believe it's something. If you believe it's anything, then it's so important that we make the most of our time here in this plane. With that, it's a great song to go out with on a Friday. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I know I did. I will be back Monday with a listener feedback show. By the way, I need questions for the expert council. I'm pretty wiped out. And send me your gun questions. J.R. Haley did a friggin' awesome job twice now as a guest role on expert council. He loves to talk about guns. Send me your gun questions. If we can get a few three in... Get them over to JR, get the pump prime there. We'll bring JR on as a permanent member of the council. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Star. 